morning I was reading an article in the Washington Post that described this horrific case of child abuse. It's so hard not to read stories like that and know in the ages similar to your own children's ages or grandchildren. It's so hard not to muster up in your soul hatred for those who would inflict such, such evil upon vulnerable children or Or even stories about those who abuse the elderly, steal money from them, or inflict bodily harm on them. All because they're not strong enough to fight back. Perhaps this morning you yourself have been a victim of injustice in your life. Where people who have hurt you or inflicted pain on you. Or on your loved ones. Friends, what are we to do when we face enemies? Does God's word have anything to say about injustice? About those temptations to hatred and revenge? What are we to do when we ourselves are helpless and have no voice? Well, thankfully, those emotions are found in Psalm 69. A psalm that is a strong psalm, identified as an imprecatory psalm. The psalm begins by telling us that it's a song of corporate worship. A song that the nation of Israel would have sang in in their temple gatherings. We're told by the superscription that it's a psalm of David. Perhaps David himself writing and pinning most of it. Or perhaps attributed to David in a collection of sayings and put to song. The greatest king of Israel cried out for help. King David himself, an author of countless hymns, psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 69 falls within the collection of laments at the end of book 2. Last week we considered Psalm 42, the, the first lament In the book, again, we've showed you that the Psalter is divided into five books and each of them can be classified as different types of hymns, just like we sing different hymns, a collection of them, some hymns of confession, like his mercy is more or hymns of praise like Christ, the sure and steady anchor or hymns of lament like afflicted saints to Christ draw near. The Psalter is organized in a similar way, uh, different hymns for different seasons of life. And and I wanted to show you over the last two weeks, really hymns, psalms that often get neglected. You see, most of you, I know you, you grew up in church, a majority of you have. and, And modern evangelicalism has this really sad picture. It's a picture that life is supposed to be happy. Everything is supposed to be smiles. Uh, and, and, and when we face darkness, there must be something wrong with me. There, there must be a reason, some sort of cosmic karma, something wrong I've done. Therefore, this is why I have these dark clouds. Frankly, all of us know that that is not true of the human experience. More to the point, the Christian experience. You and I will face seasons of depression and difficulty and sadness and sorrow. And I wanted to encourage you by showing you that your Bible that you carry around with you, I pray that you read, has saints just like you in in seasons of darkness, in seasons of injustice, in seasons of difficulty, and they give you words to sing and pray and to think about. God's character in the midst of these difficult times. As I said just a moment ago, this psalm is an imprecatory psalm. Uh, The word itself means to pray down. Uh, It's from the Latin word to pray down. and, And literally it's to pray down judgment. In verses 22 through 28, David will pray that God's judgment rain down upon his enemies. As Christians, I'm 
Should we pray down God's judgment on enemies? How do you and I respond in these seasons? This is what we hope to learn today from Psalm 69. I invite you to turn there if you've not already. Psalm 69, page 482 in the Black Pew Bibles. Psalm 69. I'm going to read this. It's a very long psalm. Um, And then I'll give you the point of it. And then I want to show you the outline of it to hope, I think, helpfully help you understand what David is doing here. Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to the lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And I am the talk of those who would sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, and an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. I will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy. He does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. 
What is the point of Psalm 69? Christians will experience seasons of prolonged sorrow as a result of persecution. But they remain hopeful for the Lord's deliverance, which leads them to praise God for his mercy. Mercy that they receive in the saving work of Christ. Now, as I read through Psalm 69, I hope you had some good Bible knowledge behind you. You heard some words of Christ. In fact, this psalm is quoted six times in the New Testament. So this morning, you're not going to hear a synagogue sermon. You're going to hear a Christian sermon. You're going to see that this psalm is really about Jesus. That David here is a type of Christ. He, he's a foreshadow of the Messiah that is to come. And our Messiah, Jesus Christ, uses this psalm and fulfills it in his death. And anticipates its fullness in his second coming. As we dig into this psalm, I want you to see that the psalm, if you have your Bibles open, is divided into two parts. Two parts. There's really two main stanzas. First, a lament, a lamentation, which goes from verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 28. So that's the first part of the psalm. The second part is a, is a song of praise, beginning in verse 29 and then ending in verse 36. Now, uh, if you have in your mind just for a moment a, a sandwich, if you were going to build a sandwich, you're going to have slices of bread, and in between that you're going to uh, have various parts, maybe some mayonnaise and, on one end and mustard on the other end. Now, if you're like me, uh, you put your condiments in a certain order so as they complement the food that they're touching, right? Uh, I, I'm strange in that way. So if I'm having a hamburger, I don't put the mustard where the patty touches, right? Uh, I put the mustard where the, the lettuce touches, right? Because the, the acid in the, uh, in the mustard, the, 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 the vinegar, complements the lettuce, right? Because you've got to have something. Lettuce is gross, and so you've got to have something to really complement it. Uh, and, and the patty is complemented best uh, by the, the oily, uh, very fat-rich mustard, or rather mayonnaise, right? Uh, and, and then in between, you've got other things, right? Um, okay, so, so you compile a sandwich in a certain order, okay? Uh, at least I do. Uh, well, well, King David here, he does this with his song. He compiles it in such a way, puts it together with layers, so that one can uh, savor the beauty of it and not lose it. And for us, it kind of doesn't come through as clear as it does in the Hebrew, but so I want to point out the, uh, the chasm, the, the, the castic structure of it. It's an ABC pattern, so ABCCBA, all right? So A's are the, are the, 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 the bread, Right, The B's are the, the condiments, and the C is the meat in the middle. And that middle piece is what David's point is. This sorrow and suffering. So look at it really quickly, show you the structure, and then we'll get into the meaning of the text. First, he begins in verses 1 through 4 with a prayer of salvation. So the first slice of the bread, the first slice of the sandwich is, is a prayer. Notice he bookends the other end of the psalm, the song of praise, with a prayer. Look there in verse 24, or rather verse 22. In verses 22 through, um, uh, or rather 29 through 36, uh, I'm messing myself up here. Uh, 22 through 28, uh, you see he prays there. Look at verses 22, let, let their table, and he goes through the imprecatory. He prays for God's judgment on the wicked. So prayer is the bookend of this section of the psalm. Then if we're to go into the next layer, layer B, you'll see in verse 5, and then in verses 19 through 21, an affirmation of God's knowledge. Look there in verse 5. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Then look uh, over just on the other side there in verse 19. You know my reproaches. I look for pity. You know. So it's sort of uh, capped by this knowledge of God's understanding of his situation. Then in the middle is the, these two themes of disgrace in verses 6 through 12 paired with deliverance in verses 13 through 18. In other words, 
as he gets to the heart, the sort of center of the song, he pits his disgrace, his reproach with God's deliverance of his servants. In other words, he's not totally at a loss. He has a hope-filled expectation of God's deliverance of his people. Then, at the second half of the song, this sort of praise for the God who delivers the humble in verses 29 through 36, he follows a similar pattern. Again, he, he begins with personal and communal praise, in the, sort of the A in verses 29 through 32. Then in 34, he has this sort of cosmic praise. And in between that, book on each side of the praises, he has this affirmation of God's character in verse 33, that God cares for his people. And then he affirms in verses 35 through 36 that God will deliver his people. So I show you that because I hope uh, you understand that my outline is coming from the text. Uh, I I didn't conjure this uh, wonderful sermon up, uh, but rather um, I want you to see that this is uh, the way David wanted you to know and understand this passage. So first, the first sort of first half, this lament for God's deliverance. If you notice there in verses 1 through 28, David here is praying for God's salvation. Specifically in verses 1 through 4, David begins by laying out his cause before the Lord. He begins to to, to cry out, God, save me, I am in trouble. In verses 1 and 2, he describes his frightful situation as drowning. Again, a very similar picture to what we saw last week in Psalm 42. The psalmist here is drowning. He says that the mire, the muck has come up to my neck. I'm about to go under. I'm sinking deep. I can't get my foothold. I can't get up. The deep waters just keep coming over my head. As he begins to move through this prayer, he he begins to cry out. Look there in verse 3. Look how, look how severe the situation is. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. He's surrounded by water. The word parched there means fire. But yet inwardly he's on fire. So it's a very frightful situation. His prayers have not been short as they have led his throat to literally be on fire. Friends, have you ever been there? Right? You've talked so much. You've cried so much. It's as if there's nothing left in you. You're, you feel literally drowning. Perhaps you've had a, someone in your life that, that suffers from, from anxiety. Often those who have anxiety describe uh, their, 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 their circumstances, something of, of drowning. There, there's this, I'm trying, I can't get out. In verse 4, he has this sort of climatic declaration of why he's in trouble. It's not something from within. That was Psalm 42. But this is from, from without. It's something that's happening to him. Look there in verse 4. More than numbers of the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Central to the attacks of his enemies are lies. Some form of injustice has been done to King David. Now, if you know the story of King David, there were many seasons of his life uh, with his relationship with his son to uh, his continual attacks by King Saul, where lies about him were spread throughout the countryside, so much so that David had to hide in the in the forest because so many lies about him were told. And here he's crying out again, Lord, they're lying. This is made clear there at the end of verse four. What I did not steal, must I now restore? In other words, do I have to pay back for the sins I didn't commit? Their accusations and lies, he says, are more than the hairs on his head. This makes sense why he feels like he can't win. For him, he's in a no-win-win situation. The lies are too many. If he were to go through and try to prove all the lies, he would be exhausted. But as he prays, his prayer does not end. He continues in verse 5 to acknowledge God's knowledge of his situation. Look there at verse 5 as he acknowledges God's omniscience. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. 
In the midst of his trials, he, does, he doesn't believe that God is unaware or unconcerned. It's the point that he'll return to in verses 19 through 21 as a part of, a re, of the reason, really the foundational reason, why he believes God will rescue him. Look there, if you will, at verses 19 through 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are, are known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. You see, it's, it's a terrible situation, right? He was trying to find those who would comfort him, like, you know, uh, join his pity party. But there was none to be found. I looked for someone to give me words of comfort, but I, but I found none. This is similar language to Job when he had no friends. He felt all alone. More than that, notice in verse 21, they try to poison him to death. They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is pretty incredible. The lengths they're going to kill him. This is serious. This isn't just sort of, you know, nagging, name-calling. This is literally, they want to kill him. But yet God knows all. You see, it was this, uh, this affirmation of God's knowledge of his situation that brought him comfort and encouragement. You know, the theological theme is God is omniscient. Meaning that God is all-knowing. And it was this particular attribute of God, his all Knowing nature, that he knew everything, that nothing happened under the sun that was not under his care. There's not some place you could go in our world, some rock you could hide under that God would not know. And more than that, there's not some thought that you could think that God does not know. He knows all. He sees all. He is our all-knowing God. And this truth, is what he brought into his mind to, to give him comfort and encouragement. Well, as I said, he moves towards the center in verses 6 through 18. Divided first in verses 6 through 12, but really disgrace for the sake of God. He, he makes clear that the reason why he is being disgraced is because of his relationship to God. David is making clear that there is a distinction between him and his enemies and particularly their relationship with the Lord. His enemies, who are themselves Israelites, though they bear the mark of the covenant, i.e. circumcision, they are not the true Israel because they are disobedient. David here is going to make clear his lament is because of his disgrace of following God. Look with me here. Disgrace in verses 6 through 12. The same unifying theme of the song of lament that leads to deliverance. He, he makes clear that the disgrace he now faces is because he has a zeal for the things of God. Notice throughout here. Verse 7. For those... For, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. In other words, he's making clear that these are relatives who are casting reproaches upon him. Then in verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Um, he's picturing here in verse 10, repentance and faith. When he repented, put on sackcloth, when he did the things that God has instructed, it became even greater reproach. The, the whole section here is summarized by different activities one would do in their faithful obedience as God's people. And all of this religious activity that he was taking upon himself in faithfulness to his God became his reproach. Perhaps you've experienced that. Family members laughing at you. Uh, you don't still pray to that God, do you? 
You don't believe in God, do you? I mean, I mean, science has proven that there's no God. I mean, it's, it's very clear. You're so silly. It's like childish, right? You, you, you give money to, to the church? You understand, those people, they just take that money and, and abuse it for their own benefit. They're thieves. They're liars. You've seen them on TV, have you? They're, they're cheats. Many reproaches fall upon God's people. In fact, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and no reproach has ever fallen on you, I don't know if you've been following Christ. Jesus makes clear that if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they call me a liar and a drunk, they're going to call you those things. It was the things of God that was causing his reproach. Look at verse 12. He offers an illustration of this. In the central commerce of the nation of Israel, it was those who sat in the gate. That's where transactions were taking place. Uh, this is where land would have been bought and exchanged. This is when agreements would have been made. This is where marriages would have been uh, hammered out, if you will, among the elders at the gate of the city. It's a central place. And, and notice what's going on at the, the center of the commerce there in Israel uh, was the king was being reproached. Perhaps a, a picture of what Absalom did when he sat outside the city gate and told lies about his father in order to turn the hearts of the nation of Israel away from him. Or even more laughable would be the second half. Uh, typically, songs are made about drunks. Drunks don't make songs about you. And so David, here in a most uh, folly way, uh, says, look, even the drunks are making fun of me when typically we make fun of them. His situation is bleak. He has been disgraced because he's following God. But... As he continues to sing, his disgrace turns to his delight. And I want you to see that because it is the overarching theme that unites this whole. Disgrace leads to deliverance. Lament leads to praise. That's, that's the point. You see, suffering and sorrow leads to salvation. And as I argue here in a moment, it seems to be one of the big themes of Scripture. Uh, Dr. Jim Hamilton argues that one of the unifying themes of the Bible is God's glory in salvation through judgment. And you see that theme over and over and over again, that God receives glory in salvation through judgment. There's a connection between judgment and salvation. And while it's not the unifying theme, it, it does show up a whole lot in the Bible. It is definitely a thread that runs throughout. And we see that thread uniting Psalm 69 together. Lament leading to praise. Uh, uh, judgment leading to deliverance. And so in verses 13 through 18, you see David here. His, his deliverance will be for the sake and, and only because of his relationship with the Lord. Notice here in verses 13 through 18, David appeals to his covenant relationship with the Lord. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies. See the theme of deliverance over and over. Deliver me from the, from the flood that sweeps over me. Deliver me from the pit. Answer me. Hide not your face from me. Answer me. Draw near to me. Redeem me. You see a theme throughout this. In each of those stanzas, and each time he utters something, he is appealing to one central idea, and that is the covenant relationship that Yahweh has with his people. It was this covenantal relationship that David was a bit, I am one of yours. And you, God, promised that you would never leave me nor forsake me. You made a promise, God, and you are a promise-keeping God. You are a faithful God. So show yourself to be faithful. Show yourself. Demonstrate. The, the words that he's using here is echoing the Mosaic Covenant. In Exodus 34, uh, 
You remember the scene, perhaps, in Exodus 34. Moses has a big request. God, I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to know you. I really want to know you, God. And God walks before him. And in Exodus 34, in verse 6, we hear this picture. As the Lord passed before Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. David appeals to this covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. And he says, I am one of yours. Rescue me. Save me because this is your character. You see, the God of the Bible is a God who is not weak, but is able A God who is not little in mercy, but is said to be abundant in mercy. This is what we sang early, right? His mercy is more. New each morning. A new supply, a fresh supply, an unending supply. This is Jesus, I'm a spring, living water. What a thought. That we will never exhaust God's mercy. We will never exhaust God's love. There's not some time in a trillion years where God says, okay, I'm kind of done with this. Kind of fed up. I want to move on to some other thing. This this is just, ah, I'm done. No, it's inexhaustible, his love for his covenant people. This stands as the foundation of, of the deliverance that David expects. This unconditional love of God that he has for his people. He will not allow his chosen one to see decay. This is David's hopeful prayer. What he prayed, of course, in other Psalms. David is the Lord's servant there in verse 17. Because of this relationship he has, he is his slave. And he knows that his master will not let him die, but will come swiftly to his rescue. Well, as David continues, as I indicated, he ends bookends this with a prayer imprecating God's judgment upon his enemies. This perhaps in all of the psalm causes most concern. Look with me at verses 22 through 28. For King David, he could not let his enemies get away. He sees them as God's enemies and he is sick of their assaults. And so, in a moment of weakness and despair, he cries out, judge them. Notice with me the judgment that he... As the wicked had done to him, so he desired God's swift retribution. Let their food be poisoned to them, as it was poisoned to him. Let their own table become a snare. In other words, let the food that they eat, the... Just like they gave me poisonous food, let their food become poison in their mouth. Let their eyes be darkened as my eyes have grown weary from weeping. Remember his eyes couldn't even open. Weary eyes. Verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Let your wrath be poured out them on them as their evil has been poured out on me. Let their home, their home life, Be uprooted as my home life has been uprooted. You read the life of David. He had not much of a home life to emulate. One, because of his own sinful problems. This is what led to his issue with with Absalom. His own lack of care. He says that my, I become a stranger to my mother's sons and my brother's. It's familial discord. They, these enemies, had brought upon him the reproach that his parents, his mother, and his brothers didn't want anything to do with him. And and he prays, God, let that be there. Let them not have any children anymore. Let their generations be done with. Let punishment become. Let them have no acquittal from you. Look at verse 27. In other words, don't forgive them. And even worse, verse 28, let their name be blotted out of the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. In other words, 
Don't even think about saving them. Don't even, don't even let that be a, 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 a thought that comes in your mind, God. Don't save them. Let them have no place in your kingdom. David here in his prayer anticipates that they will not ask for forgiveness. He is hedging his bet that these individuals are so vile and so wicked that they will never turn. He gives them no room for hope. So we think about David's prayer, and particularly the point that I'm going to drive home now, which that where David prayed for his enemies to be condemned, the anti-type, Jesus prayed that God would forgive. On the cross where Christ is taking his and bearing the shame and reproach that was not his, but the shame and reproach of our sin. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not when what they do. While Christ's first coming marked the coming salvation of the Lord, it anticipates a coming judgment. We are told in the New Testament that when Christ comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. While in his first coming, he came as a loving, forgiving God. In his second coming, there will be not room for salvation, but only judgment. I am convinced that verses 22 through 28 will come to pass in the second coming of Christ. As Christians, how are we to think of this? As Christians, we often are faced with similar situations. Disgrace, dishonor. But we're reminded that grace, then judgment. We're reminded that we're to find hope in the truth that God is coming again. That Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. We find hope in the truth that God knows all things and sees all things. And that when things come to judgment, there will not be one decree from the tribunal seat of God, from the judgment seat of God that is not just. Our anticipation is in that great day when all those who think they got away with their evil will pay. And we do not do it in a spirit of spite. For we trust that we ourselves deserve God's just judgment. For he knows our actions, our thoughts, and our deeds. This passage has been quoted, as I said, six times in in the New Testament. First in John's gospel, John and John's disciples, when they saw Jesus turning over the tables and throwing out the money changers in the temples, in John 2.17, his disciples remembered what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There it is, we saw it. Verse 9. Then in John 15.25, verse 4 was uttered from the lips of Christ. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Again, verse 9 is uttered and used by the Apostle Paul to further that argument we heard. When Stephanie read from Romans 15.3, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul uses Christ as an example for us as Christians. That when we are sinned against, we don't just turn that on others and sin against them. But we follow the example of Christ. When he was reproached, he didn't reproach them, but but bore those. And therefore, trusted in God's goodness. In verse 21, we see this used by John in John 19. As fulfilled in Christ on the cross, they gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. You remember when Jesus was on the cross? 
In John 19, 29, John attributes this verse as fulfilled that they gave him sour wine to drink. And remember, it was when that sour wine touched his lips and they were moistened just enough, he cried out, it is finished. Or in verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Paul uses this in Romans 11 in a, in a central passage in, verse, in chapters 9 through 11, where Paul is arguing that the true Israel are those who repent and believe in Christ. Not those who are merely ethnically Jews, but those whom, whose hearts have been circumcised. And he prays this upon his own people that they might see and turn from their sins and trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is an encouragement I believe, as we meditate on this passage, to find that our Savior loved this psalm. He committed this psalm to memory. He used it so much so that his disciples could remember verses that he would quote to them in their private conversations. Zeal for my house. You see, through our union with Christ, we identify with such a Savior as is displayed in this psalm. One who suffered reproaches of others suffered our reproach for our salvation. John Calvin says it this way. When we reflect that David has spoken, as it were, out of the mouth of Christ, and as it were, out of the mouth of all true saints who are the members of Christ, listen here what he says. We ought not to think that any strange thing has happened to us. If at any time we are so overwhelmed with death as to be unable to discern the slightest hope of life. Friends, there was times in the life of Christ when he was so overwhelmed with sorrow and suffering that all he could do is pray. Brother, sister, you may be in such a season right now in your life where, where you are struggling to find the words to even pray. Pray this. Let these words be your prayer. Uh, cry out to God. Use these for our Savior himself. Use them. David's lament for God's deliverance leads him naturally then to praise him. If you look here in verses 29 through 36, uh, as he concludes this, this psalm, it is deliverance that leads him to praise. Lament leads to praise. Suffering leads to salvation. Look there in verse 21. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. The picture is, is, is quite hopeful, isn't it? I, I'm afflicted and in pain. Notice he contrasts them. In other words, he said, you could say it this way. God, I would never experience your salvation if I was never put in a place of affliction and pain. I would never truly know your steadfast love, your mercy, your faithfulness if I was not allowed to experience seasons where I needed you to save me. Brothers and sisters, we know this is true, central to the gospel. The, the gospel, the evangelion, the message we share, the good news we share is only good because there's bad news, right? It's not good news if, if there's not some bad news, right? I mean, we know that when we go to the doctor, right? When the doctor looks at it and says, I have some good news for you. I mean, it implies that there was some bad news he might have shared with us. David is saying that the only reason... I can praise your salvation is because I needed to be saved. And friend, this is true if you're not a Christian this morning. See, until you come to the place where you, rest, where, where, where you wrestle with the truth that you need to be rescued. See, David couldn't be rescued until he, he saw his need for rescuing. You see, for you, you think you can go about life without God. But friend, let me just remind you of this truth. I hope you hear from me every week. You cannot do it without God. If you turn up into heaven and you have this really amazing list of awesome things you accomplished in life, they will pale into comparison to all of the evil deeds you've done. 
and all the evil thoughts you've thought and all the vengeful things you've said. So find hope in the one who took your reproach, your sin and shame, and put it upon himself. There you can find forgiveness. Well, David goes on in verses 29 through 36 to praise the Lord who delivers a people. But notice what people. Look with me here. Verse 32. When the humble see it, that is your salvation, they will be glad. And you will seek God. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. In other words, God only saves one people, and that's a humble people, a repentant people. And he praises this God who would deliver the humble. This praise is both personal. I'm afflicted. I'm in pain. I will praise the name of the Lord. I will magnify him. This will please the Lord. Paul has a forward gaze about him, doesn't he? If you look throughout this section, his verbs are all future tense verbs. It's all in the future. I think this point is one you need to hear. David is praising God, though he has not been delivered yet. You see, you can praise God even when you're suffering. You can praise God even when he has yet to answer your prayer. Because God is faithful, David knew that he would deliver on his promises. So we could say that's the way we could organize the Bible. Promises made, Old Testament. Promises kept, New Testament. See, God's a promise-keeping God. It's, it is his nature. This is why he could say, I will magnify you. I will be pleased in you. Because God will deliver the humble. He will rescue the contrite in heart. When the humble see it, they will gaze upon it. Can we not see Christ foreshadowed in the gloom of Gethsemane in this prayer? And in the gloom of darkness of Gethsemane, as Christ is sweating drops of blood, as he's breaking down, he has this hopeful, I will yet again praise you. Because for Christ, he knew the resurrection was coming. He knew darkness only loomed for a season. He affirmed God's present care, as David does here in verse 33, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Again, God is not far from his people. God is here and ready to rescue the proud, not the proud, but the weak, not the strong. It's the Lord's character throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, to rescue one people, a contrite people, a humble people, a weak people, a low people, a people who society rejects. Just this day, just this morning, I was reading in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, and, and Jesus was dining with Simon the leper. And I was just struck by that. Simon the leper, a social outcast. Nobody wanted Jesus had healed him, but the, the ramifications were still there. But, but, but that's our God. He saves the lowly. He saves the despised. He saves the reproached. Well, from this sort of we see ultimate sort of tell us culmination in verses 34 through 36. The point is this. God saves for his own glory. God saves for his own glory. Notice here this cosmic praise. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion. God will deliver. God will come through on his promises. From personal praise to cosmic praise. The universe is praising the Lord Almighty. God saves for this one reason. For his glory. He saves not because he's impressed with you or me. He saves so that we will worship him. That's it. God delivers the humble. So that he would rescue. And so that he would get the credit. And David concludes with this affirmation of God's future deliverance. For David, he must wait. He knew that it wasn't coming tomorrow, not even today, but that it would come in one day. And it would come 
Many years later, thousand years later, when Christ ascended to the cross, there victory was won. There the true Israel would die. Not for sins that he had committed, but for the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. The true and better Adam had come and taken his throne. And he was raised from the dead, vindicating the fact that this promise was fulfilled in him. Christ was victorious. And that he would build a kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom that would have no end. Brothers and sisters, our hope in the midst of suffering is the anticipation of this future kingdom that is coming. We are already citizens of this kingdom, but the kingdom has not yet come. We live in between the, the comings of Christ. And so our hope in the midst of sorrow and sadness and lament is to look forward to that great day, the resurrection of the dead, where we will be raised to life everlasting. First comes suffering, then comes eternal life. Let us remember this on our way, that he suffered our reproach that we might have life. Brothers, sisters, endure your sorrow, because there is coming a day when your sorrow will be turned to sight. As we sing, till our faith shall be turned aside when he comes at last. That is our hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come, your will be done. For your glory alone in Christ. May we see that our sorrows are meant to lead to our salvation. That lamentation leads to deliverance. May our hearts anticipate the great day when, when their every tear shall be wiped away. And there will be no more sickness. There will be no more sorrow. And we enter that eternal kingdom for your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.